Good morning. We're glad you're here today. Again, you're welcome. If you're just joining us, my name is Andrew. I'm the pastor here. And we're glad you're here. I'd like to begin with a word of prayer. Lord, take my words this morning and speak through them. And then take our thoughts and give us new insights. So think through them. And as a result, Lord, take our hearts and set them on fire for you and for your word and for your world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this is what we pray. Amen. Tomorrow is my birthday. Stop, stop. I don't say that so you'll pay attention, you know. Don't go to a big deal. Small cash gifts are fine. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's a joke, obviously. Gift cards are also fine. <laughs> I'm reminded of my birthday in 1987. And I was living in Sierra Leone, which is a small country in West Africa. And we had just moved there. And we were getting to know our neighbors. And it was my birthday. And some of the little neighborhood boys brought me a gift. If you've ever been in a third world country, you've seen gifts like this. It's what the little street kids make out of whatever they can find. Discarded tires, old coat hangers, scraps of metal. And it was this little car that you could drive by turning this coat hanger thing up here in the air. They brought it to me as a gift for my birthday. And they brought me a birthday card. My parents, I was just learning to read at the time. My parents took the birthday card and I could see they were sort of bemused. Didn't know exactly what to do with it. Because it said, happy birthday, Henry. It was addressed to me. My name is not Henry. Happy birthday, Henry. It turns out that to the African ear of these small little boys, Andrew and Henry sound alike. You can sort of hear it. And so they thought my name was Henry. Have you ever been called by the wrong name? It's a jarring experience. There's a guy in our church... <clears throat> I was pretty sure I knew his name. I am pretty good with names, but I got to tell you, when you see people in the same place every week for just a few seconds at the time, not only do I not remember names, often I won't even remember faces. And I work hard at it, and it's still difficult for me. And so I'll see people at other places, at the gas station, at the grocery store, wearing sunglasses, a hat, a different coat, and it'll take me a second to recognize the people. But I knew this one guy in our church, I was sure of it, and I called his name boldly week after week after week. Until he came up to me one Sunday, very politely, and he said, I think you think my name is Mark. And I was like, yeah, you're right, Mark. <laughs> His name was John, and he corrected me. And if I had been a little quicker, I would have said, I knew it was spelled J-O-H-N. I just thought it was pronounced Mark, but I wasn't, I wasn't quick enough. To be called by the wrong name is a jarring experience because our names signify who we are. It's the most precious thing we have in a way, our names. You know, in a lot of cultures, you give children a name or you gain a name in, adult, a name in adulthood that really speaks to your identity. There's that great scene in Dances with Wolves, the Kevin Costner movie, where the Indian woman is trying to explain to him what her name is in English. And she keeps doing this, if you've seen the scene. Because her name is Stands with a Fist. What a great name. Stands with a Fist. And eventually he figures it out and that's what her name is. That name was given to her to mean something about her character. It was a, an anticipation of the person that she would grow into. The same thing happens in the cultures that wrote the scriptures. Names are really important. In fact, in the Bible often people 
have a name and then because of a change that happens to them because of their encounter with God, their name changes. Way back in the book of Genesis, we read about Abram and his wife Sarai and they're old and they can't conceive. Then God calls to Abraham and makes a promise with him and said, I'm going to give you descendants as many as the stars in the sky. And Abraham's, Abr- Abram's name becomes Abraham and Sarai's name becomes Sarah. And then their grandson, Jacob, he comes out grasping the heel of his brother Esau, his twin brother, and he's called Jacob the Grasper. But then Jacob has this incredible experience with the living God and his name is changed from Jacob to Israel. In the New Testament, the same thing happens. There's a simple Galilean fisherman. His name is Simon. Jesus meets him. He says, you have a certain character, and I'm going to call you Peter, which means rock. And on you, I'm going to build my church. Then there's a man named Saul. He's a good Jewish Pharisee persecuting the early church. And he meets the risen Christ, and his name is changed from Saul to Paul. Names mean a big deal because our names are an indicator of our identity. They're significant. Now, the book of Revelation is filled with all sorts of names, and we've been preaching through the book. There's two sorts of people that are here today when it comes to the book of Revelation. Maybe you, and this is more of my camp, you didn't grow up reading or hearing about the book of Revelation. The only knowledge you have of it is what you hear the crazy people talk about on the weird television in the middle of the night. And so for you, Revelation is a thing of curiosity, but it doesn't have a whole lot of personal connections. If you're here today, I'm glad because I want to give you some tools that you can use to dig into the book. But maybe you're here today and and you've come reluctantly, or you've been coming reluctantly, because for you, Revelation was a a book that was used to beat you over the head with when you were a kid. It was a book that people used to push fear into you and to give you nightmares. I'm glad you're here today as well, because my prayer is that Revelation will be for us something that offers hope. It's provoking It's challenging, it's certainly bizarre, but ultimately it's a word of hope. Now, if you haven't been here before, the only thing you need to really know about Revelation Revelation today is that Revelation is a vision given to a man named John, and this is his writing down record of it, which helps explain some of the weird stuff in the book. If you've ever had a dream, you've had experiences, and you've said, when you described it to your wife in the morning, well, it was like that, but it wasn't. We were at home, but we weren't. You were there, but it wasn't you. And you can see John's challenge to write down this incredible vision that he has, filled with bizarre dreamlike imagery, into prosaic sentences and send it to seven churches. At the very beginning of Revelation, there's a message for each of these ancient historical churches. These churches were located in what was then called the Roman province of Asia, what today we'd call Turkey. And each church gets a slightly different message. And to two of the churches we're going to look at today, there's this issue of names. Names, in fact, are very big in the book of Revelation. So I just want to ask you as we begin to talk about it, what's what's your name? Or maybe even more specifically, what's your real name? Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 and following. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write... Let me just pause right there give you a little context. Pergamum is a, was a famous city in the Roman province of Asia. It was built on top of a hill, a thousand foot high. It was renowned in the ancient world. It had a library, get this, it had a library that had 200,000 volumes in it. This is before the printing press. And after Athens and Alexandria, it was one of the intellectual capitals of the ancient world. 
Pergamum also had, as we'll see in a little bit, a temple dedicated to the worship of the Roman Empire. It was the headquarters of the worship of the Roman emperor in that province of Asia. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. That's a reference to this historical circumstance of the Roman emperor having a shrine and a place of worship there in Pergamum. As we've said before, although Revelation is very difficult, and although there are some things we don't understand, many of the things have a meaning that would have made sense to the people who first heard it. I know where you live, yet where Satan has his throne, and yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. We don't know who Antipas is. It's just some unknown name, somebody who was clearly a martyr for the faith. So the message to the church in Pergamon begins with something positive. You're doing some good things. Verse 14, nevertheless, though, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. As soon as you would have heard that in the first century, your ears would have perked up. Who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans, some rival sect, we don't know anything about them. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Again, Revelation is meant to provoke. It's bizarre. It's dreamlike. I don't know exactly what it means that somebody will fight against the sword of his mouth. But clearly there's something about the words Jesus speaks that have power. I don't quite understand it. One key to the book of Revelation is not to try to figure out what all the images mean, but more to get the point that they're trying to convey. Verse 17, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. That's a reference to the Old Testament. I don't know, I'll also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. That name Balaam in there is important. We'll come back to it. To the second church we're going to look at today, verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that now you are doing more than you did at first. Again, to the church at Thyatira, the first message is, you're doing some good stuff. But, and if you're not a church person or if you're freaked out by the book of Revelation, this next part won't help you. It's very strange and unsettling. Verse 20, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Again, your ears would start tingling. Who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. And here's the strange part. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Strong, violent language. Often in the Bible when they talk about adultery and sexual immorality, although it could be that happening literally, often it means worshiping things other than the true God. And as we'll see later, this woman's name is not Jezebel. It means something else. Just stick with me here. So I say to the rest of you, verse 24, in Thyatira, to, the, to, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, 
I will not impose any a burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. Satan's deep secrets. There was this idea that you, to know the good things of God, you had to know evil all the way. Some people were preaching that. You had to know a lot of evil to know the good things of God. John calls that a so-called secret. And then verse 26, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thanks be to God for this word today. Now, whether you're a church person or not, Revelation is unsettling. There's a lot in there we don't get. Maybe it just sounds like crazy talk over you. Part of that is because of our culture. We're 21st century Americans. We're not going to get all the references that are dripping out of John's vision to Old Testament history. Almost every line is an allusion to past history. But two things in particular in those passages I just read, first to the message of the church in Pergamum, the second to the message of the church in Thyatira should stick out. To Pergamum, the message is you're doing good, but you're listening to this guy Balaam. And to the church in Thyatira, you're doing well, but you're following this woman Jezebel. What's happening here is they're using a name as a shorthand to convey a larger idea. The people in Thyatira and Pergamum were not named Balaam and Jezebel. They conformed to a type. Balaam is an Old Testament pagan seer, a prophet, who works against God's people. And he draws God's people away from worship of the true God to worship false idols. So when John says, you're, you're following Balaam, he's, he's saying, you're following a guy who's acting like Balaam. And Jezebel, boy, Jezebel is one of the worst names you could have as a woman in Jewish culture. Because Jezebel in the Old Testament is the wife, the pagan wife of the king Ahab, who opposes Elijah and puts God's prophets to death. To call somebody Jezebel is a terrible word for them. And as we've been saying through the book of Revelation, one of its insights is to see how the world really is. Using strange and vibrant images, it's trying to tell us things aren't exactly what you see. There's more than what you could see. You may think it's somebody in your community who's just pulling people away, but I'm telling you he's like Balaam. You may think this is a woman who's just doing some other things. I'm telling you she's like Jezebel. Now, we do the same thing in our culture. If I say it was like Valley Forge, you know what I mean, or it was like Watergate, that name will mean something to us. In fact, we do the same thing with names from our history. Let's say there's a country that has a general that leads its country to independence and becomes the first president of that country. We'll say he's like the George Washington of such and such place. Now, when I was a kid, my mom would sometimes make reference to this guy. Does this picture mean anything to you? That's Eddie Haskell. Obviously, I'm too young to watch Leave it to Beaver when it came on, but I've seen reruns. That's from the television show Leave it to Beaver. And Eddie Haskell is the family friend who says things like this. Yes, Mrs. Cleaver. You look very nice today, Mrs. Cleaver. How are you, Mr. Cleaver? And then back behind the corner, he's doing bad stuff. He's scheming. My mom would say to us as we were kids, don't be an Eddie Haskell. Now, she didn't have to explain who Eddie Haskell was and tell me the plot of this or that episode with Leave it to Beaver. Because I had seen the show and I got the point. In the vision when it says, listen, you got to be aware of this guy Balaam or this woman Jezebel. It's doing the same thing. And it's a, it's a piercing insight into the way things actually work. 
our names signify who we are. But our real name is who we are really. Not what it says on our driver's license, but who our actions say that we are. Several months ago, I went on a rant at the end of one of our services about people getting to church late. Now, i got to confess to you, I can't really see who comes late or not. With the way the lights work and all, I can't ever really see. But many of you are stricken by what I would call guilty consciences. And so you'll come up to me after the service and say, I'm really sorry we were late today. And you rat yourself out. And I make a note of it in my book. And (laughs) just, Just kidding. See, are you somebody who says, well, you know, I, I get places on time, but do your actions show that you're always late? So is your real name punctual or is your real name chronically tardy? You see how it works? What's, what's your real name? Not what do your intentions want you to be, not, not what do you call yourself, but if you could see yourself the way God sees you, what would your real name be? Or according, according to the spiritual vision that John has given, this person in Pergamum and this person in Thyatira are really just like Balaam and Jezebel. What's your real name? What's your true identity? One of the things I know about our culture is that we are really good at putting up false fronts and letting people believe something false about who we really are. Charles Dickens is one of my favorite authors. And one of the reasons I love Dickens is because of his gift for characterization. Nobody is better at creating memorable characters than Dickens, particularly with regard to their names. I don't know if you've thought about this or not, but until A Christmas Carol was published, nobody had ever heard the name Ebenezer Scrooge. And is there a better name for that character than Ebenezer Scrooge? I can't think of one. In fact, that name has become a shorthand in our culture. We'll call somebody greedy a Scrooge. Well, David Copperfield is another one of Dickens' novels, and there's all kinds of great names in David Copperfield. David's brooding, violent stepfather, Mr. Murdstone. David's hapless buddy, Tommy Traddles. But my favorite is Uriah Heep. Isn't that a great name? Uriah Heep. And it fits through the guy as he's this scheming, clammy, pale guy with no eyebrows and red eyes and red hair, skinny and slithering around like a snake. And he always says to David, he says, I'm just very humble. I'm very humble. And of course, he's anything but humble. He's always scheming, trying to get ahead. And, you know, pretty much by definition, if you walk around telling people you're humble, you're not. What's your real name? What's your real identity? Not what you tell people, but who you are really. I don't know anybody who says that they're greedy. Nobody. And I don't know anybody who doesn't want to be generous. But with regard to how you handle the things God has blessed you with, what's your real name? Would it be sort of a grateful generosity, or would your real name in that area, your real identity, be sort of a grasping greed? What's your real name? I 
I saw some blog posts online this week written by women who talk about the experience of constantly feeling evaluated in a negative way by men, objectified, and how they feel fear sometimes when they're out in public and other things. I want to speak to the guys for a second. I don't know anybody in my circles who would say that they treat women poorly, who objectify them or push them down. But what would your real identity be with regard to how you treat women and how you teach your kids and how you look at women in the street? What's, what's your real identity? What's hard about identity, though, is it can be given to you. I talked to a guy this week who's a church planner in Fair Park, just a few miles from here, and he talked about the demographics of his area, and boy, they're rough, like 70% folks who don't graduate from high school, high school dropout rate, very large percentages of the men who are either have, are doing time or have done time and therefore have trouble getting jobs when they get out, just brokenness and abuse and despair. And what he said was, he said, you know, obviously some of these people have material needs in poverty, but what poverty is, is not just that you can't afford to buy some things you need to buy. Poverty is a poverty of the mind and the spirit. Because what happens is, if you grow up in these neighborhoods, our culture puts on you a name and we say, you're worthless. You have no future. You're trash. We have children growing up in our city and failing schools and the message we send them is that you have nothing the world values. That's your name. And then we wonder why they react in such a violent and nihilistic way. And I think about young women growing up in some of these places in, in our culture, and I, I think of the name that's given to young women, the name that says, unless you have a, a boyfriend, you don't have value. Unless you look like this, you're worthless. Because of the choices you've made now, you're trash. See, names can be forced on you. In fact, maybe you're here today, and, and somebody in your home growing up gave you a name, and although maybe we couldn't tell by looking at it from the outside, the name that you feel that you really own is an ugly, useless name. So what's your real name? What's your real identity? John's vision pierces right to the heart of the identity of this person that he calls Balaam and this person he calls Jezebel and these ancient churches. But we have the same thing. We have the name we tell other people, the name it says on our birth certificates or driver's licenses, and then we have the name that we want people to believe and then the name that we are really. If you're here today and you're a high school student or a middle school student, one of the things you do when you're that age is that you're constantly trying to put up a front so people think things differently about you than you really are. What's the name you're trying to tell folks and what's the name that you really are? Now, I've mentioned that names are important. And if you were in church in December, you heard us read a passage. It probably passed over you. It's about the birth of Jesus. Joseph finds out his wife, Mary, is pregnant, and he resolves to divorce her quietly. And then he gets another vision, like John, and God speaks through an angel to Joseph and says, don't divorce her, she's pregnant with the child of the Holy Spirit, and I want you to be a father to that boy, and I want you to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now again, you and I, we're not familiar with the ancient languages. The Old Testament was essentially all written in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek. And so we hear names, and a lot of our names in the Bible are, have been anglicized and made into English. But they're not quite the same as they were in the original Greek or Hebrew. 
And so the name Jesus is really just a variant of the name Joshua. Did you know that? And Joshua in Hebrew means the Lord saves. Yeshua, the Lord saves. See, names matter. Names are who our identity is. Names signify who we are really. And the name given to the little baby born in Bethlehem was the Lord saves. Yeshua. Jesus. So later on in the book of Revelation, there's all kinds of crazy stuff that happens. There's stuff about people who are marked with the mark of the beast and all other kinds of bizarre things. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 1, we read this though. John sees himself and he sees a great multitude of 144,000. And I saw that they were standing there and they had on their foreheads his name, that is the name of Jesus, and the Father on their foreheads. Then later on at the end of Revelation, this is Revelation chapter 22, the very end of the book. I want to read these beautiful verses to you. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. I love this verse. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Isn't that great? No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. According to John's vision, there are two sorts of people. There are people who choose to worship the false things of the world, the false gods that set themselves up as rival claims to the throne, to worship the Caesars of the world. And the, one of the values of Revelation is that it gives us vocabulary for the things that we see. We may not anymore have actual, literal, political, physical Caesars in the world, but we have lots of claims and set themselves up against the true claims of God. We have lots of Caesars. We no longer have the fear of Babylon against us. And by the way, neither did the people who first heard John's vision in the first century. But Babylon doesn't just mean Babylon. It means all the false powers who oppose God and the thing God stands for. There are two sorts of people, Revelation says. There are those who worship and are enticed by the false powers of the world, the powers of, of money, of sex, and power, of materialism, the things that so many of us are drawn to worship. And then there are the people who hear the words and turn aside from the false gods and turn to the true God. And the difference between them is their names. According to John's insight into the world, those who are worshiping God and have been claimed by God are marked with the glorious name of God. And that birthday card I got in 1987, it said, Happy Birthday, H-E-N-R-Y. That's how they spelled it. But the name given to me was actually Andrew. It looked like that, but it was pronounced Andrew. I wonder if you're here today and your name is spelled S-I-N-N-E-R. But the way it's pronounced is forgiven. I wonder if you're here and your name might be the true name that you hide from others, L-O-N-E-L-Y. But the name given to you through the power of the Holy Spirit working through the church's community. I wonder if your name is U-S-E-L-E-S-S. 
but through the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe your true name, it's pronounced valuable in the kingdom. Maybe your name is L-O-S-E-R. But the way it's pronounced to the victory of the lamb that was slain, to use the bizarre language of Revelation, is victorious. I don't know what your true name might be, but what I'm telling you is what John has offered to us the opportunity to, regardless of what our names might say, to be given a new name in Christ. And this is actually the mission of the church. I don't know if you've thought of it like this. Our job as a church to see people And regardless of what their name tag says, so to speak, to call them by the names that they can have in Christ. I would love to be somebody who, whoever I meet, whatever their actions are, whatever their choices are, to be able to see them the way God sees them. To the people who feel like that they have no value, we'll say you're valuable in Christ. To people who've said I've made too many mistakes, we'll say you can be redeemed in Christ. To those who say I... I'm just enchained and burdened by addiction. We can say you can be freed in Christ. To kids in our neighborhood who grew up with nothing the world values, we say, we believe you matter in the power of Jesus. So here's my challenge for you this week. Whether you're a church person or not, a believer or not, to think about who you are really, no pretense, no excuses who you are really but then who you are because of what Jesus has done for you and what your name can really be and then to encounter the people in your life the annoying co-workers the crazy family members the neighbor who drives you crazy the kids you see walking down the street people you see panhandling around East Dallas And to not see them and call them in your heart with the name that the world gives to them, but to see them and call them with the name that the risen Christ has and can give to them. May God give us eyes to see the way he sees and the courage to follow through. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.